Welcome to The Athletics of Business, a podcast about how the traits and behaviors of elite athletes and remarkable business leaders frequently intersect. The real stories and hard lessons to help you level up your leadership and performance. Now your host, Ed Molitor. Welcome to this episode of The Athletics of Business podcast. And our guest today is none other than David Covey, co-founder and CEO of SMCov. SM Cub works with the best intellectual property content experts in the world and helps distribute their content globally through licensing. David loves working with impactful IP and setting up distribution systems around the globe. Prior to launching his own company, David served as COO of Franklin Covey, which was founded by his father, Stephen R. Covey. David is a co-author, along with his business partner, Stefan Mardis, of the book Track Tales, Outsmarting the Seven Hidden Obstacles to Success. We will dive into the most common traps that we fall into, how we can recognize those traps, as well as innovative ways to get out of them. I cannot be more excited to welcome David Covey to the show. David, welcome to the Athletics of Business podcast. It is an absolute honor to have you join us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And I'd like to just jump in right now. I, you know, your, your journey has been pretty uh, amazing. You've done some great things. You've worked with, for some phenomenal organizations. Uh, you live in some fabulous places. Can you sort of talk to us about your journey and how that has brought you to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I grew up as the third son of uh, Stephen and Sandra Covey. And a lot of people know my father through uh, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People book. And uh, so I didn't have a normal childhood, Ed. I mean, can you imagine it, it, I had to be proactive at age four? <laughs> I, had to, I, had to, I had to think win-win at age five. And I had to listen empathically at age six. Even wow. to say the word empathically is, you know, was a big deal. And to be able to do that at age six had to be amazing. Yeah. So, and a lot of people know the book, uh, you know, Seven Habits book, but one of the stories in there is the green and clean uh, story. That's, that's actually not me. That's my brother, but he was seven. So we didn't, we didn't have a normal childhood growing up, you know, growing up because uh, we had, you know, we had to obviously live all these great principles. I joke about that just because uh, in a way it was awesome growing up with that. In fact, uh, when I was at Franklin Covey for a long time, we had a lot of participants go through the program and some of them were older and they would be in their sixties or seventies and they would say, wow, I wish, I wish I had this when I was in my twenties, you know, cause it really would have impacted my life in a, in a much different way. So, uh, so no, so it, it was, it was great growing up with these principles. Seven habits for me was never a book. It was always just a philosophy growing up. It's just what I grew up with. So, uh, anyways, so I, I grew up uh, in a large family, and and that's I think that's really good because you have to learn to share and and you know and give and take and and uh, and, and get along with other people, different personalities, especially when you have you know weird siblings and you know. <laughs> so, uh, but then I uh, my father's advice, you know, going uh, coming out of. Uh, coming out of college is, hey, you know, if you want to work for uh, my company, that's great, but you ought to get some different experience. Mm -hmm. And so go out and get some different experience, and then you'll be more valuable to the company. And I thought that was really good advice. So I ended up working for Procter & Gamble. uh, And I ended up uh, in the the sales and marketing uh, department. And I lived in Phoenix, Arizona. And that was great. Uh, so I had a great experience. And then I decided to go to business school. And that was awesome uh, to get that experience. And then I joined uh, Covey Leadership Center at that time, which later then became Franklin Covey. And I had a fabulous career there. I spent half my time in the, in, in, in the U.S. and half the time internationally. And the international, I kind of caught the international bug. And I hear a lot of people talk about that. But uh, for me, it was really real. You know, what I went to live to in, in Australia with my family for two and a half years. I was the managing director for the, the Franklin Covey office in Australia, and that after after that experience, I was hooked. And and suddenly, over time, I became the Asia guy, and then I became the international guy <laughs> for Franklin Covey. And I, I, did, I wasn't expecting that at all. That kind of career. In fact, I had one time I had a. Uh, international marketing class at uh, at business school, and I thought, 
you know, do I take that class? You know, I'm not going to really do anything internationally, you know, but I really like the teacher. I hear the teacher's really good. So I ended up taking the class because, you know, mainly because of the teacher. But I thought, I'm never going to have a career in, <laughs> in the international. And uh, ever since Australia, you know, basically for the last 21 years, you know, my career has really been uh, in, in the international arena. But so anyway, after, after, uh, after Franklin Covey and after my father retired and, and passed a couple, couple years after that, uh, I decided that it was really time for me to kind of break out on my own and uh, do what I always wanted to do, which was my dream, which is to you know, be an entrepreneur and do my own thing. So I, I've, I've done that uh, with my business partner, Stefan Mardix. Uh, Stefan is originally from France, uh, but he's living in uh, Texas. Uh, so he says, bonjour, y'all. <laughs> Uh, and you know the french they they never lose their accents uh but he's a wonderful guy but we we've been building this business uh together for the last seven years it's been a great ride how has that journey been building the business i know i i I know firsthand the entrepreneurial world can be a little bit interesting it can be a bit of a grind was it everything you you thought it would be in terms of challenging or was it more it was more challenging by a factor of four, <laughs> so much harder, uh, and it has been an absolute bear. You know, so I, I I'm not a I'm not a kind of guy that uh, minces with words or whitewashes anything. It has really, really been hard. And you can read about it. You know, you a lot of people read about being an entrepreneur, but when you actually live it and do it, it's it's a, it's a big deal. So actually, I have a, a one of my favorite articles. Uh, one of my favorite entrepreneurs is a woman by the name of Sally Krawcheck. And she used to run uh, uh, Merrill Lynch, and, uh, and she now runs uh, Ele- Elevate Network. Mm-hmm. Uh, and anyway, so she, she has an article. I just want to read you a couple of things on, about it. Awesome. Uh, she she says a couple, couple of her statements. She says, the truth is that being an entrepreneur is harder than running Merrill Lynch. And I'm not just saying that. I actually ran Merrill Lynch. It's the, hard, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. Uh, she talks about when you're trying to raise money. Uh, she says, none of us like being told our baby is ugly again and again and again. But hey, keep in touch. Uh, uh, around cash flow, she says, uh, something I never thought about in my big company job is cash flow. When your business has billions and billions of dollars in revenue, you can make a lot of mistakes and still have a viable business. But in a startup, make a few hiring mistakes and it takes several months to find the right person, a couple months to figure out that they're not the right person, a couple more months when you're trying to coach them and you give them an opportunity to become the right person. Then another couple of months after you part ways to find the next person. She says, being an entrepreneur is the only time in my career that I've lost sleep. And I was on Wall Street during the financial crisis. So, uh, and one last thing that she says, you know, you can't coast. She says, you know, those days at the office when you used to come in and didn't really do much, you don't have those days as an entrepreneur. If you don't do much, then not much happens. And remember what I said about cash flow. Yeah, that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so, I, 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 so it's comforting to read, you know, stories and, and learn about Sally Krawcheck's, you know, experience as, as an entrepreneur. Because uh, it, it's, it's, it's been really, really hard. Uh, if if you knew then when you launched what you know now, would you still do it? Absolutely, I, I would. And here's why: I, for me, I found my voice in being an entrepreneur. I used to uh, not get along with my bosses very much. I used to kind of, uh, you know, argue with them a lot, and uh, I hated being the kind of guy where it was like, well. You know, I'm, I'm your boss and this is what I want you to do. If I, I didn't think what they were asking me to do was very effective, I would say, no, I'm not going to do that. Not very effective. But a lot of times, unfortunately, still, even in corporate America, there's this, uh, there's you know, still the mentality of I'm your boss and, you know, you need to do what I'm asking you to do. And uh, that's, that just doesn't play well by me. Right, right. You know, and I'm, I'm looking at my notes here from a podcast you've done previously, I'm not sure of the date, but you had in terms of entrepreneurship, 
you uh, talked about the landscaping mentality. Do you remember that? You you, you said mm. that combine all three bids. Oh yeah 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 yeah. So it's it uh, it was actually uh, someone had uh, shared that with me okay. and saying okay so how do you know you know how being an entrepreneur is like and it's like doing landscaping. So let's say you have a home and you need to do landscaping. So what you do is that you get three bids and you add them together and that's how much it's going to cost. <laughs> Ultimately. And then uh, whatever time frame that they said, you can just double it. <laughs> At least, yeah. It, 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 is, it is funny. And then when you're caught up right in the middle of it, one of the things, David, I like to do at night, you know, my, my little ones are six and four. People get a kick on that when they look at me. But I like to sit in my chair in the dark when everyone's actually right. And it's actually quiet, even with dogs asleep. Okay. And one morning, it was a while ago, about a year ago, my wife asked me, she goes, What 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 are you thinking about? I go, Well, I had an epiphany last night. I said, I realized one of the differences between being a partner and helping run an organization, which I was doing in the recruiting industry, and having your own you know, I don't want to call it a gig, but having your own organization, your yeah. own journey is at the end of the day, when you put your head in the pillow, there's only one person that's really losing sleep and that really cares about what's going on. I call it the ISIS notes, and that's me. You know, and that's, that's, that's the big difference. And that's, yeah. uh, it's, it's something that's a little bit of a, of a challenge. Has it gotten easier for you over time? It's gotten, it's not a, it's not a, if I will survive anymore. And it was, you know, in the early days. And a lot of times people kind of think, oh, well, you know, David's got, you know, safety nets. I didn't. I didn't have a safety net. I mean, if this thing fell apart, it would have fallen apart, you know, and uh, the business would have failed. And I would have had to, you know, learn from that and pick myself back up. So, uh, so yes, it has gotten better in that it's not a if, if I will succeed anymore. Mm-hmm. It's just when and the timing of when things are going to, uh, you know, happen. I actually have two businesses. I have uh, SM Cub, which is a global IP licensing business, and I have a, a consulting business called Thomas Leland that helps companies align their uh, their uh, culture with their values. You know, a lot of companies say we value this, but yet the culture is very different. Mm-hmm. So between those two businesses, now uh, those those two businesses are definitely going to succeed. They're doing well. Uh, and you know, it's kind of like this, uh, the, you know, the revenues were like here and the costs were like that. And then I was slowly lifting up. So the revenues are now exceeding the costs. Uh, the way I describe it, it's like being in the ocean and having a, a long pole that you can breathe through, you know, and, uh, when you're underwater, you literally are underwater and you're only, you're breathing through this long, uh, like a bam, a bamboo pipe, you know, yeah, yeah. and, and, and the ocean is kind of rough around yeah. you and the water's getting in there. So, and then, then after a while you kind of, you kind of get up and, Oh my gosh, now, okay, now I can see. And, you know, and now your body's out. And so I think now I'm, I'm, I'm in a raft. I may even be in a boat. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that boat will just keep getting nicer too. Yeah. Um, you know, and I want to get back to the culture of values. I want to ask you a question. I always find it interesting talking to the family individuals like yourself people always thought you had a safety net you know people always thought that things were just going to happen for you because of who your father was and, and we know both know that's not true yeah who, who were some of your mentors or a mentor that really helped you along the way in your journey to get to where you are now yeah you know i honestly i, I mean you had that you know one of those questions is is possible question that you ask and and I didn't really have any good mentors. I actually had like bad mentors, I mean, not mentors. I, I had some bad leader role models that I didn't want to follow. And, and I, don't, I don't know what God was trying to teach me there, but he was just saying, okay, well, don't be like those guys. But I was kind of like, can you give me something that I want to be like? So I, I, I would say my mentor was uh, definitely my father. Uh, I mean, really, really respected him for what he did. He was 50 years old. He was a professor for 25 years, and he broke out and set up his own you know, business, Covey Leadership Center, when he was 50, and, and nine kids, and I was one of nine kids. So I was like, you know, in hindsight, you know, so impressed with that and uh, inspired by that. And I remember times, you know, he had the whole 
company on his back and all of the financing you know he he had on his back and at one time he had everything mortgaged to the hill mm-hmm. you know uh, so if the thing would, if the business would have gone under he would have lost everything so he risked everything and so that for me was a real inspiration you know that I can do it so I left Franklin Covey when I was 44 and I had seven kids so that was you know six years younger and two kids less than my father. So I thought if man, if my father can do it at age 50 and nine kids, I can do it at age 44 and seven kids. Uh, so, but, but unfortunately I didn't really have a mentor. Now I had a great business partner. Stefan is my business partner. Mm-hmm. It's really great having somebody that you can talk with and commiserate together and share your vision together and your struggles and, and your disappointments. Uh, and, and having somebody as a partner, I think that's really, really important. I hear a lot of entrepreneurs, some of them are by themselves. Man, that, that, that's, that's really lonely. Uh, and not being able to have somebody to share. So, you know, maybe people have family and, and friends or a mentor, you know, that they can share in, with, which is great. But for me, I think that Stefan has been great for me uh, in that way. And then just the, my, my father and kind of the memory of what, you know, what, what he did with his business was really inspiring. We also had, uh, I had a great grandfather. His name was Stephen Mack Covey. In fact, he was the first Stephen Covey. Okay. So his son was Stephen Glenn Covey, and then his son was Stephen R. Covey, which was my father. Okay. But Stephen Mack Covey was a great entrepreneur. And uh, there's a story, he was a sheep herder in the late 1890s. And he was caught in this dreary section of Wyoming and uh, it was like minus 40 degrees, and he was stuck there. And he vowed that if he ever got out of there that night, he wasn't, you know, didn't know if he was going to survive. He would build a house, a place of refuge. So if you're ever in uh, Salt Lake City area and, you're, and you want to go on I-80 I- East, going eastbound, mm-hmm. you can drive there and uh, about three hours outside of Salt Lake, going east, in Wyoming, in the middle of nowhere. There's this hotel, and it's called Little America, and uh, oh it's a little. It's a, it's a hotel, and it's also you know, gas. It's a big trucker stop now. Okay, and it's in the middle of nowhere, and that was where he built that place of refuge. Thirty years later, after his uh, harrowing experience, so uh, in the 1920s. Yep, yeah. actually, it, it came out in the 1930s. Uh, so yeah, it's about 35 years later. He actually built that uh, built that hotel. So I have a picture of him, and I have a book on him because he was a great entrepreneur. Uh, but I, I loved I loved that story of him, uh, in, you know, being stuck in that uh, in that storm and in you know, the minus forty degree weather, and surviving and coming out on top and, and eventually building uh, building that hotel. That, in, that that's an, yeah, that's an unbelievable story. I I never knew that, and and I, I kind of feel bad that I didn't know. Cause it's such a phenomenal story. What, um, let me ask you this. We're going to get to, we're going to get to trap tales. I really want to talk about that that book, an outstanding book. Um, one of the things in your journey to get to where you are, we talked about the bamboo rod. Was there ever a tipping point for you or is it one of those things you wake up and you realize that things are going okay? Or did you have this aha moment where, holy cow, we made it, even though we think we, we never really believe we made it, but was there a tipping point? Yeah, there was, uh, you know, so my SM cup business, we licensed, uh, intellectual property. And when we, uh, were able to sign on as one of our IP owners that we're going to take his content globally, uh, Dave, David Allen, getting things done, GTD. Yes. A lot of people have heard of David Allen, you know, he's a pretty popular guy. Uh, but when we signed him on and we started to find licensees for him, we now have uh, 28 licensees that we found for him uh, that represent his uh, getting things done content in 60 countries. Uh, and when we started, he would, you know, he had two countries that he was in outside the United States. So when we did, when that started to happen and we started to have a lot of people call in and say, I want to represent David Allen, you know, it was like, yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, we are, you know, we haven't arrived, but you know, we're going to survive and we're going to get through this. And, and that was definitely a tipping point. Uh, you know, f- for us in our business. Great. So all the work, all the struggle, all the grind to get to where you are now is, is growing, is scaling, is moving forward. Is that can, which one's going to be a bigger challenge to have gotten to where you are now or to grow the business in an effective way? 
think the bigger challenge was just to have the vision and the tenacity and the perseverance to just kind of keep at it, even though things didn't seem like they were getting better. I mean, you got to remember, there's leading measures and lagging indicators, leading indicators, lagging indicators, lagging indicators is, you know, what, you know, what your revenues are like and what your cash flow is like. But the leading indicators are the things that you're doing that are going to impact that. And unfortunately, it just seems like it takes a lot of work and a lot of activities that you need to do before you start to see some of the fruits. And uh, so I think the tougher thing was just continuing to believe in yourself, believe in your dream, not give up and know that, yeah, even though things didn't look bright at the moment, you were doing the right kind of activities that were going to lead to some really good things happening. Uh, And that's what a lot of people don't see is that they don't see, you know, the struggle of you being under the ocean, you know, breathing through the bamboo pipe, (laughs) the bamboo, bamboo pole, probably not a pipe. Yeah. But they don't see that. And and all they see is like, hey, wow, cool. You're 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 at, you know, you're, you got your own boat and you got a new book. And it's like, wow, this is great. You know, and, <laughs> and they, think, they think that just happened, you know, yeah. and, 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 it, and it's not. So you, you have to just really have faith and confidence in yourself. Uh, I'm a big fan of Steve Jobs. I think he was a great entrepreneur and a great visionary. He wasn't necessarily a really good manager or boss, you know, but like all of us, you know, everybody has their strengths and weaknesses. But one of the things he said uh, about entrepreneurs, I have a little quote here. He says, I'm convinced that about half of what separates the successful entrepreneurs from the non-successful ones is pure perseverance. Hmm. And, and, and I totally agree with that. I think that uh, you, you, just, you really have to just be scrappy. You have to be resilient and you have to persevere. And if you do that and continue to believe in yourself, uh, I, I think you can overcome anything. Yeah, no, that's, it is a great quote. And, and this is a great segue because I want to go back. I want to circle back to the culture and values. You know, one of the things I work with my clients, whether it be corporate clients or executive coaching clients, and I talk about them in my speaking, um, building that unshakable foundation of what are your core values and how does that align with that? How does it align with your vision? How does it align with your goals? And how does that drive? The culture. Can you talk into a little bit about how that has helped you build uh, your two companies? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I grew up with a father that would talk about principles and about how uh, the world is governed by principles. And they're not just not natural law principles like the law of gravity, but there's principles that operate in in life and in business. So, I, I'm I I'm a big believer in that. I mean, I think the principles are. They're natural laws that play out, you know, and they're not unique to any country or religion or society or culture. You know, they're just, they just exist. And so uh, I think the principle of having a vision for where you want to go, you know, and if you have, and a lot of times uh, your vision that you have may be good, but it needs a lot of course correction. You know, it needs a lot of changes and adaptations and modifications and that's really what, you know, a successful entrepreneur does is that they're not just stuck in saying, oh, okay, well, I want to do this. Okay, yeah, but the market's telling you that that's not that cool of an idea or there's not really people that are interested in that. So you have to learn to adjust and adapt. Uh, so for me, Ed, uh, the, I knew all these principles uh, existed in, in terms of how they operated. And, and if I would uh, continue to have a vision... A habit two of the seven habits begin with the end in mind is really about vision. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I can hear the words from my father like it was just yesterday. And he used to said, your head creates your world. Whatever's in your head is going to create the world uh, that you have. And a lot of people would ask him and say, you know, out of all the seven habits, which one is, you know, is the most important? He would say habit two. And habit two is begin with the end in mind. It's the idea of vision. And vision is greater than baggage. You know, vision is, is greater than the past. Uh, you know, the Bible teaches without vision, the people perish. Mm-hmm. So vision is absolutely, uh, I think, a, probably a critical uh, principle that I tried to uh, follow and, and, and believe in. And, and you need that vision when you're in the, in the midst of it, right? You're in the midst of the storm. 
you need to be able to see that there's some kind of uh, shining light and some kind of you know clear pathway that uh, where you're headed. Mm-hmm. So, and then the big trick with that, and I, I can't wait to hear what you say about this. The big trick with that is we need to keep looking at that vision. We need to keep that forefront of our mind. But we also need to be where our feet are, so to speak, and have those feedback loops so we know what type of success we're having or what are we learning from failure or how are we growing from adversity. Um, I like to work in, in two-week feedback loops. Can you talk a little bit about how you've been able to do that as you scale your businesses and, and create this compelling vision but yet be so conscious and have such a presence of mind of what's going on today and how that's, you know, how that's working into the lagging goals? Yeah, absolutely. So in our business, you know, we have a business that uh, IP owners outsource their international expansion to us. And that's great. And there's some good brands like like the one I mentioned, David Allen, Getting Things Done and other good brands that we represent. But what we realized is that that was not a solution for everybody. And so we thought, okay, well, we have to be more flexible and adaptable. Let's think about what other ways in which people can can work with us. So we actually created a, you know, a, a consulting uh, business, advisory business, where we, we can actually go to companies and say, hey, if you don't want to outsource to us your expansion, why don't we just teach you how to fish? We'll teach you about all the ins and outs of how to build an international business. What are the characteristics you need to look for in the licensees? What are the seven mistakes that you're going to make going global that you should avoid making? And so we ended up having a, an advisory business. Then we had some clients come to us and say, well, I don't want to outsource to you and I don't want you know, the advisory business. I just want your help in you know, finding partners in these certain areas. We thought, okay, yeah, we can do that. So we now have kind of basically a, a fee-based business that will help part, uh, IP owners find partners in certain countries and so forth. So what, what happened is, and also with our licensees, we used to only have, exclusive master licensees. We had a lot of licensees saying, I don't want to sign a five-year agreement and I don't want to you know, be stuck with all these financial obligations and a revenue forecast and minimum royalty payments. Don't you have anything else that we can do? So we actually created a whole new uh, system. We call it a non-exclusive distributor. And this is somebody who can kind of test the waters with the program and product in their in their home market without the financial obligations and without the commitments. But that, that came about from our experience in talking with licensees and realizing that, you know, there isn't one size fit all kind of the model. We have to, you have to be more flexible. So absolutely. I, I think that we have, to, we had to do it at a necessity for our business, you know, to be able to, to you know, to stay on track and, and to be profitable. But, uh, but I think the lesson and the learning there is, you can have a vision, but you have to, you know, you have to, have, like you said, you have to have your feet on the ground. You have to be practical. You have to be realistic and you have to go where the energy is as well. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times your original vision, uh, I, I would say when I say a lot of times, I would say actually all of the time. <laughs> I don't think that anybody starts off and says, this is it. And then doesn't, you know, make any adaptation. It, it doesn't happen. Yeah. That's why that, you know, the joke of, you know, uh, people doing like, you know, five-year business plans and all that is just like, are you kidding? You know, how about five-month business plans? You know, our world is changing so rapidly that you have to be flexible and adaptable uh, or you're, or you're, you're really going to get stuck. Well, and, and practically speaking, there's a lot of traps to avoid. Okay. So let's, yes. talk, let's talk about trap tales and outsmarting the seven hidden obstacles to success because I look at my, my prep work. I look at my notes and my questions. If we talk about this, it's going to answer everything. And I'm, I'm excited about that. So we'll go ahead and just and fill us in on the concept behind the book and, and, and the way you delivered it. Yeah. So Stefan and I are like content junkies. Okay. <laughs> that means that we live in this world of content, you know, material, you know, training programs. We've seen 200 training programs, uh, in, in, in the last 20 years. And one of the things that we observed that did not exist is this whole concept of p- people are trying to achieve the success, but they're falling into traps. That they, they are having obstacles, the things that are preventing them from achieving what they want to achieve. It's like the force field analysis by Kurt Lewin. It's the model of driving forces 
and restraining forces, right? You have the current state and you have the desired state. And most of the time, people always are giving themselves more driving forces. And that's okay. But a lot of the time, the answer is not another driving force. It's another removing the restraining force. So using a metaphor like driving a car, if you have your foot on the accelerator and that's your only strategy and initiative is putting your foot on the accelerator. Okay, well, that's, that's great. That's one strategy. But if you have the other foot on the brake, you're not going to go anywhere. And so a lot of times the way to be able to be successful is to take your foot off the brake, you know? And, and so, so the whole metaphor around uh, trap tails and, and becoming a trapologist, a trapologist is, a, is somebody who's an expert at spotting and staying out of traps is let's avoid the workplace traps that exist in our, in our work life so that we can uh, get out of those traps and free ourselves and, and achieve the results or the vision or the, you know, the end goal that we want to achieve. So we had to start, you know, so we did a lot of study and research and originally we came up with like 30 traps, you know, <laughs> and of course you can't be uh, a covey and write a book and have like 30 traps, you know, you got to whittle it down to the magic number of seven, right? Yep. Absolutely. So, so we, came up with, we came up with the seven, uh, seven traps that exist in the workplace. Mm-hmm. So, would you like me to elaborate more on that? Which which are number one? Which are yep. So the the, the first trap is uh, the trap of busyness. We, you know, we call it the focus trap, and it's drowning in the thick of thin things. And when you think about it, we are busier than ever, but half the stuff a lot of studies show is completely non-essential and worthless. And we're just we're mired in the thick of thin things. We're drowning in it. And it's crazy. We need to learn. We need to learn from uh, Steve Jobs we, uh, and, and other good people that learn how to focus. And we have to say no to even good ideas. It's not about saying no to the bad stuff, but it's saying no to even good ideas so that we can focus on the uh, on the very few most important things that we can execute on. Uh, it's a huge problem and something a huge trap that a lot of people find themselves in. Uh, right. Then there's the there's the procrastination trap. Oh, you want to talk about that? Yeah, I'm sorry, but the, yeah, in the focus trap. You said something I heard you say once. That was awesome. Um, we're mired in the thick of thin things. Correct. Yeah. Can you explain that a little bit? So thin things are things that are not that important. Okay, things that are not are that are not really essential to our job or to our role or to our life. You know, if you want to extend it outside of the work. And uh, so you can think about like social media, okay? And I, you know, I, I have social media and I use it occasionally. <laughs> but there's some people that are completely addicted, and uh, and, and their life is centered, uh, you know, around uh, social media. And it's nothing wrong. I'm not saying anything wrong with with social media, but I think that when we carry it to the excess, to where it just dominates so much of our time and our life. Uh, then, then it becomes a problem, um, and and I think that uh, people have that with email. I mean, think about email. Email's gotten out of control. It's crazy. There's no way that the, the current level of of uh, of, of uh, emails that we have, you know, you can't keep up with it. Right. So we so we so we have to find a different path. We have to find a different way. You know, the conventional approach is to say, "Hey, become a better juggler." Just juggle everything that you have. And the reality is, is that if you do that, you know, you're going to have a lot of balls drop. That's, 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 that's exactly what's going to happen. So the, the epiphany, a breakthrough, which is what we have in each one of these traps, is you got to learn to say no. You got to learn to say no. You got to say no to good ideas. You got to say no even to great ideas so you can focus on the few great things that you can do. And I think that that's, uh, that's the challenge. That's the trap for a lot of us is we just get mired in that thick of thin things and we end up being very busy, but we're not really accomplishing the, you know, the critical, uh, uh, critical things that we should be doing. Right. Now let's talk about another trap. Yeah. Another trap. Second trap. Okay. Procrastination. That's, that's, you know, that's what we all do. We procrastinate things. Uh, but you know, we've, 
and, and what happens is that we procrastinate things until we don't have a lot of options. I, I, in my presentation, I talk about the Fortune 500 companies, and I look at how from 1955 to 1995, more than two thirds of those companies fell off, and and it's and it's because they procrastinate reinventing themselves as a company and reinventing them, you know, the, you know, their, their products and their, and adapting to the marketplace. And it's the same thing with us. All of us know things that we are procrastinating that we're putting off. And when we put off those things, we're not able to grow and transform in, in, in the ways that we need to do. So it's, it's a challenge. And then you, we have these perfectionists among us. There's some people that don't even want to try to do anything. They become completely immobilized. Uh, because they want to be able to be perfect at whatever they do, which is <laughs> never intended for how, how we should operate as humans. One, one of the things I found, excuse me, with procrastination is people, and you just said it, um, they push back on change. And I, I, one of the things I really embrace is the fact that people, the majority of people will change when the pain of failure becomes greater than the pain of change. That's what, right. What have you found to be the biggest blocks? Like why people just they you just said they know what they need to change they know what they're putting off they know what they need to do but yet they refuse to do it yeah and and when you think about it it's change is happening so change you can kind of think more of an external thing it's always happening around us what we are putting off is changing us changing right we don't want to have to you know change the way we're doing things the reason for that is that we like to be in this comfort zone. And this is what's so hard about being an entrepreneur, at least in the early stages, is that you're thrown completely out of your comfort zone. And all the things that you used to know and, and love and felt comfortable about, they don't exist anymore. You know, I remember when we had like some computer problems, it's like sending stuff on. So you call somebody from IT, you know, <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. We're IT. <laughs> we don't have an IT department, you know. And and uh, and so humans love to be in a comfort zone. They don't want to push themselves out of that comfort zone because it's 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 just human nature, you know. It's just it's it, it's it's just to kind of settle in and relax and survive. There's no growth. There's no growth when that happens. You you, you stagnant. You become stagnant and 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 you regress and but. If you really want to grow, and, and it's not exciting because a lot of people don't want to do it, you got to get out of your comfort zone. And so the the reality is is that it's just human nature. I, I, I don't I don't I don't know how else to say it. You know why people do it? I just think it's just part of our nature to stick with what's safe and what's easy, and we avoid things that are hard and challenging. And if we're perfectionists, of course we're never going to want to do hard and challenging things because that's going to make us look bad. And if we look bad, that's that's horrible. So, so I'm listening to one of your wonderful keynote speeches and you talk about getting outside your comfort zone and I come up to you afterwards and say, Mr. Covey, that was awesome. But how do I get outside my comfort zone? How do you answer that? You try something new, try something different, mm -hmm. try learning a language, try learning a new instrument, mm -hmm. try starting a business, do something that you've always wanted to do that you've put off because you've been scared of failure. You've been scared that you're not going to succeed. I mean, how many people put off stuff because they're scared and they're afraid? Right. And uh, so that really good, parlays really uh, good into the next trap, which is the learning trap, which is about letting mistakes define you. And the whole concept that we have around mistakes is wrong. It's, 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 it's incorrect. And I think that the, what we, the way we look at mistakes is when we make a mistake, Instinctively, what we want to do is protect ourselves, cover up, hide it, spin it, make it look not so bad. And yet, when you look at any of the great stuff that's created, like Edison and the light bulb, you know, it took a thousand iterations, you know, to get it right. Uh, you look at uh, Pixar, and Ed Catmull is the CEO of Pixar, and he says that early on, our movies suck. He says, I'm not just saying that. He says, they're really, really not good. And our job is to take them from suck to non-suck. <laughs> this is quote. And, and most people would be like amazed by that. I mean, I see Pixar movies and I'm amazed at how many times it's like, oh my gosh, you nailed it again. You nailed it again. But he's saying it's the iterative process. You have to iterate, you have to iterate, you have to iterate. And we work, we work, we work. 
And that's what life is about. But somehow we think that maybe when you're 10, you know, you can't make mistakes anymore or it's not socially acceptable. So we kind of retreat into this more mode of not trying things, not experimenting with things. And that's, that's the biggest tragedy of it, of, of it all because we're not going to learn and grow unless we try things and experiment and make mistakes and learn from those mistakes. Now, I'm not talking about making the same mistakes again and again and never learning from them. I'm talking more about this idea of experimentation and trial and error. And we got and, and, and having a culture in a company that encourages people to take risks mm-hmm. as opposed to encouraging them to play it safe, don't rock the boat, don't challenge the status quo. And that's the culture of a lot of companies that we have in America today. So how important is it in your, in your opinion interview how important is it for a leader to model that behavior and to create a, a culture or an environment where it's safe not only soft i mean safe to make mistakes and to fail and okay let's sit down and figure out what happened how important is it is that for a leader to do absolutely critical because what will happen is that you can have a company give this rhetoric they can put it in their mission statement or in their values or whatever but at the end of the day, if, if it's bad, but if somebody actually does it and they get punished or beat up for it, <laughs> then it doesn't really mean anything. It's, mean, it's just platitudes on the wall. So if the leader can say, look, I want a culture of experimentation, of trying things, of risking things, and I'm going to lead the way. And they go out and they try things and they fail and they say, wow, look at that. What a massive failure that was. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Uh, let's, let, let's think about what we can learn from this because I'm sure there's a lot of learning that we can take from that. So if they model that behavior by their own uh, you know, uh, experimentation and, and making mistakes and, and trying new things, that will send a message to the culture more than you know, whatever you have on your mission statement or your values of, you know what, we, we actually value this. And, so, and, and the key thing is this. At the time that a mistake is made, what's going to be the reaction? If the reaction of the boss is, why did you do that? You know, and they get punished and they get beat up for that. And again, if it was just an honest mistake, you know, not, not something that was you know, uh, malicious or, you know, or, or unethical or something, then, then, then you've, just set the, you've, just, you've just told everybody what the culture is, which is don't take risks, don't walk the boat. Don't experiment because you know what? You're going to get shot down and beat up and you're going to get criticized for that. So, so what happens? People kind of revert back into their shells like a, a turtle. They just you know, put their head back in and say, you know what? I'm not going to try anything because I know what trying things means. <laughs> right. right. Now, that, so we, we have the learning trap. We have the procrastination trap and the focus trap. How about a fourth trap? So the Zen trap is about triggers. Uh, so we're talking about Zen, not you know, just kind of being in the in, in in a peaceful state of mind and and being in the zone. You know, a lot of talk, a lot of people talk about that in in sports, but it's a triggers and it's allowing emotions to taint your perspective. So all of us have certain triggers that really really set us off, and we have to learn to. Uh, not allow our emotions to get the best of us. And a lot of times people respond to triggers in two ways. Either they aggressively confront it, you know, either people or situations, or they uh, actively avoid it. You know, so it's more of just this you know, avoidance thing. And what we need to do is we need to have a broader perspective. One of the stories that my people like best from my uh, uh, father's book, Seven Habits, is the story about him being on the subway, the New York subway. Mm-hmm. And that, that there was this father that was on the subway with his kids and the father had his head down, you know, in his hands. And meanwhile, his kids were running around and causing all kinds of havoc and knocking newspapers from people's hands. And my father was watching all this and, and I'm sure he was looking at it and saying, well, this looks a lot like uh, my house. <laughs> <laughs> but, but he eventually said to this guy, he just said, Hey, you know, sir, I wonder if you can, you know, you know, uh, uh uh, watch out a little bit more for your kids because they're kind of a lot, a lot of disruption. And the guy said, "Oh, I just, just come from uh, a funeral 
where their uh, sorry from the hospital where their mother died, and I, I just don't know how to how to handle that. I don't think the kids know either. So suddenly you think about the perspective. It's like, oh my gosh. So now the whole perspective, rather than judge and saying, you know, being annoyed, it was like, oh, how can I help? You know, how can I, uh, how can I support you uh, and help you in in this in this trial, this crisis that you've just experienced? And that's what we need to think about in terms of the triggers. Is we need to broaden our perspective, and we need to we need to say, you know. Give people the benefit of the doubt. They, they, they must have had a, a really, really bad morning or they must be going through something that's really hard and that's why they're acting that way. And when we actually start to broaden our perspective and even ask questions and find out more about uh, the, 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 you know, the people or the situations that triggers, trigger us, we're able to see it from a whole different perspective. Uh, but unfortunately, we're not like that most of the time. We have something happen and we immediately just kind of respond and and uh, overreact, uh, and and so we're suggesting in this uh, in this training program to to step back and get a get a broader perspective of what's happening. That really that really speaks into one of my my favorite quotes, and I I bring this up all the time. Uh, Dr. Wayne Boyer, when he says, um, "When I change the way I looked at things, things I looked at began to change." And I, yeah, it's just it's just if you if you develop that ability to pause a little bit, it's not easy to do. You know, it's not it's not easy to do, but yet it's such a um, Simple solution, so to speak. That's right. But especially if you know what triggers you, what are the things that, you know, set you off? And if you're even aware of that going in, then you can kind of say, okay, wait, wait, this, yeah, this was one of my triggers. Okay. So what am I going to do? Am I going to do what I normally do or I'm going to do something different this time? So how, how, how critical is self-awareness? I think it's a competitive advantage to be honest with you, but how critical is the ability to develop your self-awareness with, with triggers and other things. Well, you remember my father talked about the four human endowments that are unique to humans. Self-awareness, imagination, independent will, and conscience. Well, self-awareness is critical because we are not animals. We are not subject to our conditioning. We don't have to absolutely respond to something. We, we, we can breathe. We, can, we, we have a space. You know, between stimulus and response, there's a space. And, and we just need to uh, be aware of our triggers, of some, maybe some of our weaknesses. And we got to come up with strategies on how we're going to do it differently. If we don't think about it in advance, it won't happen. We'll just immediately go to the normal reaction, and usually which is a negative reaction, which is not going to solve the, the, the issue. But if we can think about it in advance and say, you know what, here's my strategy. Uh, I, I watch a lot of sports like you do. When I was first married, uh, my team, uh, my basketball team lost. And I was married. I was just married like three months. Okay. And I took my fist and I <laughs> hit through it through the wall. I mean, literally, my wife was like, thought I was married a bad man. Said, Who is this guy? And, uh, and then I stormed off for like two hours, you know, and my wife was like saying, wow, that she had never seen anything like that. Right. But I realized that, oh man, I get, I can get really angry when things don't go my way with, for my team. Mm -hmm. I gotta, I gotta have to learn to how to manage that in a very different way than what I do now. (laughs) Dare I ask you, dare I ask you who your team was? So it was, uh, it was, uh, BYU. Uh, and, and basketball uh, playing against Utah. Okay. Well, wow. Okay. Now I'm understanding that a little bit more, though. Yeah, you know, the right, <laughs> it was a right. It was a big rival game. Yeah. Funny yeah. thing now is that I have three nephews that are on the Utah football team, awesome. so I am a Utah football uh, fan. Yes. Yeah. But well, yeah. You, you get a hall pass on that one. Yeah. Yeah, you get a hall pass. So um, trap number five. Yeah. So uh, trap number five is uh, silos. And it's the idea that we operate as an independent on a team. And it's, you know, the whole concept is that uh, we need to work together on a team. My, uh, I, I, I use the analogy of how many have ever done jigsaw puzzles before people raise their hand. Okay. On, on the scale of one to 10, how important is it to see the end scene in mind? You know, the jigsaw puzzle that you're creating. Of course, it's a 10. You know, you got to see it. But what happens is that we have people who are all working on the jigsaw puzzle but they're all operating from a different end scene in mind, okay? Mm-hmm. Somebody is seeing the, you know, the Eiffel Tower and 
Someone else has seen Ares Rock down in Australia, and someone else has seen the Empire State Building. And that's what we have on teams is we operate way too independently. And we don't make the shift from, you know, me as an individual to a team. And uh, it's, it's a huge problem. We're not operating on the same page. Yeah, in, in, an analogy you've used before, I believe, is a married single. Yes. And, and, and that's, that's something that's, that's very prevalent, obviously, in the entrepreneur world. Um, and can you talk into that a little bit? Okay, the married single is, is taking that uh, same trap at, at, at home, okay, uh, or in your marriage. And, and that's where we believe that, you know, uh, our way of doing things is su- superior to our spouse's. And, uh, and we don't shift our mindset from, you know, it's not about me anymore. It's about us. It's about we, you know, it's about our team. And then we're unwilling to change. You know, it's the concept of, well, you change first and then I'll change. And of course, if you wait for your spouse or your coworker to change, it's not going to happen. You have to be the one that's proactive, that takes the steps right. to make those changes happen first. It's like habit five. You got to seek first to understand then to be understood, you got it. You got it. You got to be the willing uh, the party to do that. So you you can have this on a marriage. And you can have this on a team. Right. The same kind of concept. And then the concept is is that you know we just we don't make that transition uh, to a we. I've hired a lot of salespeople that uh, were really really good that I hired as the sales managers, and it was like God, you're, you're going to be great as a sales manager, and you know because you're so good with clients, and you know now you can help other people. And a lot of them didn't make it. And the reason why they didn't make it is that it was all still about them. Yeah. It was about them being the hero and them making the big sell and them closing the big deal. And it's like, God, no, God, it's not about you anymore. It's about <laughs> the team. You got to, you got to, you got to focus. Like now it's about your team. It's not right. about you. It's about your team, but they can never make that shift. You know, they just wanted to keep focused on themselves and, and, and they couldn't make that shift from, you know, me to we, the team. Right. And that's what happens with a lot of people is yeah. they're on teams, but they're still operating independently. Right. No, absolutely. Um, number six. So six is the career trap and it's the settling. Yeah. And uh, that's losing your passion and inspiration in your professional work. A lot of people don't like their work. If you look at the engagement uh, figures, we've been doing this you know, training and other things for 20 years. The engagement figures haven't changed. They look the same like they did 20 years ago. They're no better. And the reason is, is that too many of us settle in our job. And, and there's really uh, four parts of our job that we need to care about. There's the economic, okay, or the financial side, you know, the, the, are we paid fairly? There is the... Uh, the, the, the mental side of it, you know, is that are we creatively utilized at work? There's the passion side of it, the heart side of it, you know, it's like, do we love what we do? do we, you know, do we love our job? And then there's the, the spirit side of it or the, the contribution side of it is, are we making a difference? Are we making a contribution? And if you only have like one of those things operating, so let's just say that you're paid fairly what you do, but you hate what you do, you never use your mind, and you don't feel like you're making a difference. You would go crazy. Yeah. Now, a lot of people, uh, and I think there's been some extra studies on this, is like, okay, I'm going to pay you a half a million dollars a year, and your job is to dig a hole six feet deep and then fill it back in. And that's what your job is for a whole year. And guess what? I think a lot of people would do that for a year because of, ah, if I can make that kind of money. Mm-hmm. But after a while, guess what would happen? They would go crazy, Right. Because it's like, why am I doing this? And well, what purpose is this serving? And, and it's, just, it's just a job, you know? And great, I'm making money, but there's more to me as an individual than just somebody who's making money. So my father used to use the metaphor is, you know, the stomach is really the economic. The, the mind is, you know, is the mental. And the uh, heart is the passion, right? And the spirit is the contribution. And we have four parts to us. And there needs to be four parts of that in our career. And there's no reason why we have to settle. There's too many good companies out there that are taking care of all four of those needs. And, and, and you can, as an employee, you can also impact those, those things by, by, by many of the things that you do. But too many of us are settling. So the trap is we settle 
and we stay in our job that we hate and we stay there for 30 years. And that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. We should never do that. And I, I could not agree more with you. And then the seventh trap, and we'll get to a couple more things as we wind this down. What's the seventh trap? So the seventh trap is this whole idea of uh, myopia, which is pursuing financials at the expense of everything else. And this is at the organization. So this is kind of be can seen as an organizational trap. It also could be seen as uh, as the the idea personally, you know, of accumulation. We think that the whole world is about accumulating and acquiring things. And we discover that at the end of our lives, that it doesn't matter. You know, uh, it doesn't matter. No one at the office is going to ask you uh, uh, or care. Maybe your kids will care, you know, if they're going to inherit some money. But, you know, what matters most, if you look at the deathbed literature, what matters most is deathbed literature of people who are dying and what they say is important. Okay. And what they talk about is relationships and experiences. We have a model in our family that says uh, we value experiences over possessions. So when you think about it, you buy something, it's great, it gives you a little bit of joy, and then guess what happens? It breaks down, it becomes outmoded, you know, you got to get the new model. Uh, It brings some happiness, but things don't bring long-term happiness. What brings long-term happiness is our relationships, our family, our experiences, and service, serving other people, those things bring long-term happiness. And I think that we sometimes just get it all wrong. Uh, and and it's and it's this we think we're in this uh, this uh, world of our job is just to accumulate more than our neighbor. Uh, yeah. Doesn't make and, sense. And, and one of the things that I would think a listener, our, our listeners sitting here now, is saying, okay, well, I I get all these. These are awesome. These are, the, but how do I know if they are a trap and, and there's four characteristics I believe of the traps and each trap has in common. Can you talk about yeah. Them? yeah, absolutely. So uh, the way you can know uh, is, is whether you're stuck in it. And look, not everybody is stuck in some of these things. I have a lot of people that, you know, manage their money really well. They don't have debt, you know, so they don't have it. You know, they have a debt trap or uh, so it's not to say that everybody's stuck in these. You may be stuck in some more than others and, and that's fine. But what we find is that it's seductive, okay? So uh, it's it's so the four words are seductive, deceptive, sticky, and limiting. And uh, so I think it's a little bit deceptive when a credit card company sends my eleven-year-old son a credit card application. You know, <laughs> to fill out. So, hey, let's see how early we can hook these guys. You know? We're going to wait till high school or college for crying out loud. Let's yeah. get them when they're eleven. Yeah, yeah, let's go. Uh, so it's it, 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 and it's it's uh, so we kind of get sucked into it. Uh, it's it's it didn't turn out kind of how we thought. You know what what we thought we were going to get. It you know just didn't turn out right. And then sticky and limiting. Sticky means uh, we just find ourselves stuck. You know we just find ourselves immobilized. We find ourselves not progressing. Uh, or we find ourselves stagnant. You know, we're just, we're not growing and, and we're not moving towards our goals in, in, in a significant way. And, and, and it's limiting because this is not, you know, we all have this, uh, this opportunity to be our best selves. We all should be our best selves. There's no reason why we can't all be our best selves. Many of us are not our best selves because we're stuck in these traps. Right. And, and I want to, it's unbelievably limiting. And the sticky word, uh, you had mentioned before, it's a little bit like quicksand. And, and it's easy yep. easy to get, it's easy to fall in. It's easy to step in it. And people sometimes think there's a difference between, to me, getting outside your comfort zone and being reckless. And it's easy to get yourself in a situation that is a trap. But hey, man, that, that doesn't mean it's easy to get out of. Yeah. Right. To- yeah. Totally. I, I'll, I'll share an example that is a, a trap that I've, been stuck in and my family's been stuck in we we are terrible budgeters <laughs> and we spend way too much than uh, what we make and and it doesn't seem to ever change <laughs> <laughs> and we keep you know so we are the family that pays all this interest on debt mm-hmm. and and if I were in my 20s and I were in my 30s you know and I was just starting off in my career and my life this, you know, what are you going to be? Are you going to be the kind of person that earns interest 
are you going to be pay, the kind of person that pays interest? For me, the first 30 years of my professional life, I've been a person that pay, has, has paid interest. <laughs> and I can't stand it. And, uh, and I keep falling in that trap. And, and, I, and I've done some strategies that I you know, share in the book on how to get out. That's to create a debt snake and create some, uh, a scoreboard on, on, on how, to, how to get out of that. But I find myself keep, keep following back in that trap. It's, it's pretty sticky, limiting. I, I don't know what, I, I gotta, we got to come up with some strategies that I do differently <laughs> to help me with that because I, I can't stand that. And I hate, hate, hate. And I think that's like what you said. I think the pain for me after 30 years of pain, so much interest for so long, has finally reached its threshold to where I said, yeah. enough. Enough. That's enough. It. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but that's, I, I, and I think that, you know, the better to learn from vicarious from someone else's experience or from a book. So you don't have to get to that threshold, but it's, it, it's tough. It, yeah. it, it's hard. And these, these are these are things that uh, that many of us will struggle with our, our whole lives. I know right. I have. Now, and you're talking about you're talking about exercises. You're talking about processes. I think that's a great segue into talking. Uh, excuse me, talking about your workshop, Trapologist at Work. Can you tell us a little bit about that? How we can find out about it? Where we can find out about it? Yeah, you bet, Ed. So we have. Uh, uh, we have a website. It's, it's not live. It's kind of called Trapologists at Work, where there's an opportunity, and that will be, you know, that'll be live in a month, probably by the time uh, you release the uh, this podcast. But uh, but what it is is that we've taken the Trap Tales book, and we've taken four of those traps, which are really kind of work career related, and we've adapted the three that are more personal, and we've made them more work related. Okay. So, uh, and we provide this, it's a one day training and it's the training of becoming a trapologist at work, looking at the traps that are stopping us, that are preventing us, the obstacles that are getting in the way that are preventing us from being our best self at work and to being successful and reaching our goals. And, uh, and it talks about the seven traps, uh, that we've just covered, uh, busyness, procrastination, uh, ego triggers silos settling and myopia those are all kind of the negative words uh, you know one word descriptors right. but that's that's what the course is about is is really kind of getting into depth around that and and the people will leave with anybody going through the workshop will leave with very concrete action plans to be able to get out of those traps and do things differently than what they've done in the past which is uh often the hardest thing for people to do is actually take action and do things differently that's awesome. And it goes back to what we were talking about in terms of a change, you know, and you, you lay it all out there and, and leave no excuses for folks not to, to take yeah. action. Um, and in addition to all the, the, the work you do, you, you also do keynote speaking. How can folks find out about that work when they go get information about um, hiring you? Um, yes, sir. So they can go to David M.R. Covey. Uh, I don't know why my parents gave me two middle names, but <laughs> I, I have uh, two other brothers that also have That's the MR. Cool. Yeah. So, uh, David Mr. Covey, uh, dot com, and uh, there's uh, there's information there that you can uh, that you can look at and some uh, some videos and other things and some podcasts that so you can kind of get a sense for what a keynote speech may look like for you. Okay. Your... David, David, it's been an absolute honor. Is there anything as we wrap it up? Is there anything that you would like to add? And, and oh, by the way, you knucklehead, you forgot to ask me about this or mention this. Yeah, I'd just say the last thing is I just want to leave the trapologist message is a message of hope. And it's the message that we can change the trajectory of our life at any point in our lives. So it doesn't matter if you're 50, like my dad, you can start your business or you can be 44 like I did. Uh, and it doesn't matter how deep you're into the trap. That doesn't define you. That's not who you are. It's baggage. It's history. And vision baggage. So I just I want to leave your uh, your audience with this message of hope, and and we can change and we can adapt. We are human beings. We have four unique human human endowments. Uh, we don't have to live our life uh, in the same way that we've lived in the past. Happy, we have changes. We have to be active, and we have to get out of our comfort zone, and it is going to be painful. 
uh, you know, to change some of these habits. But uh, I think the benefit of that we're going to get from it is going to far outweigh the the negative effects of it. That's awesome. And then to take it one last step further, um, the whole changing the trajectory, can you get a little bit, a couple of words of inspiration from when things you begin to make that effort? And we always talk about creating sustained success, but how about creating that persistence and sustained effort when things aren't going so well? I think that for me, what worked well is other people who have been through the same things and how they came out on top. So for me and my business and some of the struggles that we've had in setting up our business, uh, I've looked at my father and said, wow, okay, well, he did this. And, or I look at my great-grandfather, you know, that was stuck in, the, the, uh, in Wyoming, <laughs> negative 40-degree weather. And it's like, wow, he overcame this. So I, I, I think that you can take a lot of inspiration from or, or Sally Krawcheck, which I cited, you know, talking about being an entrepreneur, it's harder than, you know, running Merrill Lynch. It's like, yes, yes, that's how, that's how I feel. I mean, because it's harder than running Franklin Covey, you know, the, the roles that I had at Franklin Covey. It was a lot harder. So, uh, so you got to find some inspiration in people that have gone down that path and have succeeded so that you, when you have your hard times and your struggles, you can look and say, you know what? They did it. They did it, and I can do it. That's fabulous. Hey, David, thank you so much. I cannot thank you enough. I appreciate it. And to listen to this podcast and previous podcasts, go to the athleticsandbusinesspodcast.com. Check out our website, themolitorgroup.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Molitor Group. We also have our Facebook business page, The Molitor Group. And always, I love connecting with folks on LinkedIn. It's a phenomenal platform. Um, I'm at Molitor. And David, thank you, and I appreciate it, and I would love to connect with you again soon. Sounds great. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thank you. Take Take care. Thank you for listening to The Athletics of Business. Be sure to give us a rating and review so we know how we're doing. For more information about the show, visit theathleticsofbusiness.com. Now, get out there, think, act, and execute at the highest level to unleash your greatness.